One Sunday morning, a mother went in to wake up her son and tell him it was time to get ready for church, get out of the bed, we're going to church. To which he replied, I'm not going. Why not, she asked. I'll give you two good reasons, he said. One, they don't like me. And two, I don't like them. And his mother replied, well, I'll give you two good reasons why you should go to church. One, you're 54 years old. And two, you're the pastor. Get up. We've all been that guy on Sunday morning, have we not? And uh, this morning we're going to start a new four-week series called LHC Life. And we're going to walk through uh, what does it look like, what's our strategy for actually making disciples here. That's our mission statement, our memory verse uh, this week. Our mission statement here is making disciples who are gathering, growing, and going. But the question is, what does that look like? How do we do that? Is it biblically based here? And so what does it look like to make disciples here? And that's just not a catchy statement we came up with and something we put on the worship folder or on the website. It actually drives everything we do organizationally here at Liberty Heights Church and uh, forms our disciple-making pattern and efforts. And here's why I think that's important. So our memory verse uh, this week, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20 for this month, uh, it is Jesus' final commission. Uh, he's telling his followers, hey, listen, I'm leaving. There's, the ascension is coming up. And until I return, this is what I want you to be about. I want you to spend all of your efforts and resources and organize your energies around making disciples. That was Jesus' final commission. And so because that, uh, he, he left a plan in place. And God's plan, his primary vehicle for making disciples, that mission he left, is the local church. God's plan uh, for making disciples for the glory of God are the people in this room sitting right around you this morning, all right? So turn and tell your neighbor, we're the A-team. Would you just acknowledge that this morning? Now, some of you are sitting next to a person, you're going, if that's the case, we're in trouble, right? But here's the reality. God uses ordinary lives like ours to accomplish his extraordinary mission of making disciples and advancing the gospel. And so we want to be as intentional as we can here at Liberty Heights. And so that makes sense, right? We've got an eternally significant mission. We've got a limited amount of time and resources to accomplish that. And so we want to be as intentional as we can in our efforts. We don't want to throw a mud at a wall and see what sticks. And so that just makes sense to me. However, in 12 years of consulting with other churches, I have found the majority of churches have no plan on actually how they uh, plan to accomplish disciple making. They've got activities and they've got programs, but they've got no process. Uh, once pr a person shows up, they don't say, hey, here's your next step, and after that, here's your next step, and these are the environments we've created to facilitate all that. They, they just hey, say, show up this week and uh, show up again next week and then do it again the week after, and hopefully, just by showing up, not by taking steps, hopefully a disciple uh, becomes uh, a part of the byproduct of all of those programs uh, and activities. And so we want to be way more intentional. On the back of your worship folder uh, for all four weeks of the sermon series, you'll see something called Discipleship Path. And so it's something we on staff work through. It's something we evaluate against. And you can follow along and fill that in as we go throughout this week. And you'll know exactly what steps we're asking you to take in our discipleship path. And we're also going to, through this series, reveal a slight update uh, to our mission statement, which for us is a big deal because it drives us organizationally. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn this morning to start off in Hebrews chapter 10. Now this series will be a little more topical, so we'll look at various passages of Scripture as opposed to walking through a passage or a book of the Bible like we do often. And so this morning we're going to look at three primary passages of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 10, and then if you want to mark that and put a place in your Bible or on your uh, uh, tablet, he, uh, Psalm 73, 
will be the second place that we land. And finally, we'll look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 this morning. But we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 10. As you're turning there, let me read an article, or an excerpt from an article I came across this week on the subject of people gathering together faithfully for worship in America. That's the title of our message this morning, is Gathering Faithfully. So, as a culture, uh, how are we doing this idea of gathering faithfully? Uh, here's, here's an excerpt from the article. It said, when it comes to religious institutions, Americans exhibit some contradiction between their beliefs and their actions. On one hand, the vast majority feel that churches and other houses of worship are powerful forces for societal good. According to the Pew Research Center, almost nine, now listen to these stats, almost nine in ten Americans say that religious institutions bring people together and strengthen uh, community bonds. They play an important role in helping the poor and needy. Uh, 75% would say that the, they help believe churches protect and strengthen morality in society. So 90% said, hey, it's a good thing for society. 75% said, you know what, uh, when it comes to upholding morality, churches are a good partner in that endeavor. All right, so 90%, 75% now. So that's what people believe or they say they believe, but listen to how the practice actually plays out. However, only approximately half attend religious services on a monthly basis and even fewer attend weekly. One of the blog, blog posts uh, written this year in church leadership circles that was incredibly uh, widely circulated was a post written by a Canadian pastor, a guy by the name of Kerry Newhoff. And Kerry Newhoff wrote a blog post titled this, 10 Reasons Even Committed Church Attenders Are Attending uh, Church Less Often. Now, that was a five-part blog series, and in just a little over a year, uh, that, that blog post has been shared almost 17,000 times. And on um, part one of that series, uh, there have been 640 comments on part one alone. And we don't even know how many times it's been read. We just know the comments and how many times it's been shared. So with that uh, research out there, with that blog post getting that kind of uh, circulation and readership, it's clear that attending church every week is going out of style. And with the busyness that people's uh, lives are characterized by here in America, I don't see that trend reversing anytime soon. And so here's a, here's a fair question. With the explosion of live uh, service feeds, podcasts, some churches are even opening up what they're calling internet campuses where you never have to step foot on the church or you can be considered a part of that church. Uh, so all kinds of technology. Here, here's a fair question. Is the weekly gathering together of the saints, is it, is it important, is it needed, is it even biblical? If we're going to say that uh, part of our mission statement is to gather faithfully, is that even a necessity in light of all the advances of technology? So I'm going to walk you through why I think the scripture, not me, why I think the scripture teaches that it is important to commit ourselves to this idea of gathering faithfully. And the first reason I want you to see from Hebrews 10 is this, is that faithfully gathering is the pathway to engagement. Faithfully gathering is the pathway uh, to engagement. Now, if you sat through our Hebrew series, and particularly when I taught through Hebrews chapter 10, and I said, hey, we're going to talk about gathering faithfully, but turn to Hebrews 10, your antenna should have went up. Uh, if you remember from that, from that uh, uh, section we taught through, you should have said, hey, 
he's going to talk about the importance of gathering together in church and being here and attending. And if I remember correctly, he made a big deal that Hebrews 10 was not a verse about just attending church, even though commonly that's the verse that people quote when they say why uh, you should attend church. And so uh, you are correct. I did say that. And so let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 10 uh, this morning and then reacquaint ourselves with actually uh, what he's teaching here. So Hebrews chapter 10, uh, let's read verses 23 uh, down through verse 25, verse 23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner is of some. And so some have been taught that's about why you should attend church on the weekend. Uh, as the manner of some, but, or in contrast, exhorting one another, that's just a Bible word for encouraging, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day uh, approaching. And so let's just remind ourselves, if you weren't here, maybe you've forgotten exactly what's being taught here. Uh, in Hebrews verse chapter 10, verse 25, when he talks about, as you see the day approaching, that day is not Sunday. He's not talking about, hey, listen, encourage everyone to go to church on Sunday, all right? When he talks about the day approaching, he's talking about the day of judgment, He's saying, hey, listen, hold fast in your confession of faith because when Christ returns in judgment, you want to be found uh, belonging to him, faithful to him, giving evidence of the credibility of your faith. And so that day is not Sunday. It's not talking about just going to church, all right? And, and here's why. This passage is not a call to attendance. When he talks about those who are forsaking the assembling of themselves are, but rather don't be like that, instead encourage it. Listen, he's not drawing a contrast between those who don't attend, those who forsake the assembling, and those who do attend. That's not the contrast being painted in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 23 through 25. The contrast that he's uh, painting here is those who don't show up, forsake the assembling, and those who engage deeply. That's the, listen, go back and listen to the language. He says, those who forsake the assembling of themselves, that is someone who doesn't show up. But then he describes how you should behave, and listen to the words he says. Stir one another up to love and good works. Exhorting or encouraging one another. And so much more. Now, when I read phrases like exhorting one another, encouraging one another, stirring each other up to love and good works, and so much more in that, does that describe uh, attendance or does that describe engagement? That describes engagement, participation. He's painting the picture uh, between a person who doesn't show up and a, a person who is, is radically, deeply engaged in the life of the church. And so why would he do that? Wouldn't the nat natural con... A uh, contrast to draw would be, hey, don't be like the people who never show up or rarely show up. Be like the people who show up. Why, why would he? Because here's why. If you're listening, say amen. In the early church, they had no reality of a person who was connected to the church that wasn't deeply engaged. That there, wa there wasn't this idea where a person said, hey, I belong to that group of believers. I'm a part of that local expression of the body of Christ, but I only show up every now and then or intermittently. They, listen, that, that wasn't even addressed. Why? Because that was never a part of their culture. Listen, when you committed yourself to Christ, 
automatically you committed yourself to the body of Christ and you took that call to make disciples and to spread the gospel to the nations seriously. And so you could not uh, afford a person sitting on the sidelines and going, oh, I'm an inactive member of that church. By the way, did you know in the New Testament there's no such thing as an inactive member? Did you know that? That's an oxymoron. And so the reason he wasn't addressing, hey, they attend, they don't attend, he said, no, they don't attend, and they're deeply engaged, because that was the only thing they knew when it came to the local church, the body of Christ in that location. There wasn't this idea of spectating or consuming, it was, no, no, I'm all in, the mission's too important, our resources are too limited, Christ is going to return, I'm all in, helping move the ball down the field in my local church, making disciples. Someone described the local church like this, like an NFL football game. Uh, they said it's uh, 22 people on the field desperately in need of rest and 70,000 people in the stands desperately in need of exercise, right? Now that's true uh, unless you play for the Cleveland Browns, amen? Someone just cancel that team for the glory of God, shut that thing down, right? Now, if that's what's being taught, I had per a Browns fan after, in between the service, said, I hate you and I'm not coming back. And I said, I hope you get saved. That's what I told him. <laughs> hope you get saved, right? Now, if this is a passage drawing contrast, not between a tender and a non-tender, but a non-tender and a person who's engaged, then why would I bring this up about the idea of gathering faithfully, participating, coming together weekly as a spiritual discipline? Why would I draw to this, this passage if that's not entirely good? Because here's why, and this is so simple that, that I want to state it though. Faithfully attending is the prerequisite to engaging. You see, it's hard to make the argument that yes, I'm serving, I'm giving, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going on mission trips, I'm memorizing scripture, I'm grouping together with other believers, I'm deeply engaged in the disciple-making efforts of the church. It's hard to make that argument with integrity if, if I'm not here most of the time. And so the idea of, of engaging, the prerequisite is faithfully attending. Now, when you hear that, you're like, oh, that sounds legalistic. Like, that, that sounds like we're under the law, and we're not under the law, we're under grace, and you taught that in Hebrews and Galatians, and I, and I remember that part, and so that sounds totally uh, legalistic. Now, let me just, let's just take that idea and pick a different organization and apply the same logic to a different organization. Let, let's pick Little League. And so, would you ever go to the coach at the beginning of the season and say this, you know, I signed up on the team, I you know, felt stuff, and, and I'm in, I'm on the team. However, I want you to know up front, you can count on us to be here part of the time. Uh, and some of the time, when something else comes up more interesting, we're probably not going to be here. But other than that, we're deeply committed to this team. You know what the coach would say? He was like, no, that, that's not how this works. Now, here's the deal. I'm going to make an argument. I'm going to argue that the work of making disciples is more important than the work of making an all-star. I'm going to argue that it's eternally significant. Do I love sports? I love sports. Listen, look at this body. I'm a former athlete. Amen? <laughs> Keyword, former athlete. But at the same time, I cannot neglect the work of gathering together faithfully for anything else. Listen, Phil and Little League doesn't matter. Anything else uh, in that blank. One writer said this. He said, there's so many things in our culture competing for people's attention and he said, I believe that for most Christians, what they're suffering from is weapons of mass distraction. So many 
things on our calendar, so many things competing for our energy and our attention and ultimately the affections of our heart because whatever captures the affections of our heart will drive our behavior. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, we've taught that over and over and over. And so the reality is the very act of coming together faithfully as a priority. Listen, it's countercultural. And being distinct from the culture is what gets us noted, not acclimating to its demands. I captured this on Twitter, just in case you wonder if I'm cool. I am on Twitter. I sat down for breakfast with a pastor friend of mine. He's probably 15 years older than me. He goes, hey, i got to ask you a question. He got real serious. I was going to be like a theological question. He goes, i got to ask you a question. I kind of sat up. I said, yeah, what is it? He said, are you on Twitter? I just died laughing. I said, no, but I am on Twitter. You should get on there yourself, right? Here's the thing I captured on Twitter. Guy said, in a disembodied world, the church's physical gathering of people in a common space for a few hours on Sunday is a revolutionary act. And he's right. He's right. One of the primary ways the early church that people know that they belong to the way, which is what they called followers of Jesus, one of the primary things that marked their life that they knew they belonged to the way was their faithful gathering together of the saints, their faithful engagement in the body of Christ, the disciple-making thing called the local church. We see it all over the scriptures in the New Testament. Let me just give you a a couple verses here, uh, samples. Acts chapter 20, verse 7 says this, On the first day of the week, we gathered with local believers to share the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 16, 2 says this, On the first day of each week, you should put aside a portion of the money which you have earned. So he's talking about being generous when you come together in that, that gathering. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Now, they were serious about it, and I'm not advocating this, but here's what it said. Acts two forty six says this, They worshiped together at the temple each day met at homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And then James chapter 2, he's describing the sin of favoritism that happens when the church gathers together. And James 2, 2 says this, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting. What meeting? The corporate gathering of the saints. Come into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry. Another comes in who's poor and dressed in dirty clothes. And he talks about the sin of favoritism. But the point is this. He says, hey, listen, you're gathering together all the time. And sometimes when you're coming together, you're giving favor to people who you think are wealthy. But the point is this. They were gathering together regularly. And the local church are to make disciples to glorify God. And one of the most consistent patterns we see of that being played out in the Old and New Testament is the saints gathering together to be built up for the glory of God. Now, what did that look like? We we don't totally know. Listen, in the Old Testament, when you look at descriptions of corporate worship gatherings, it was detailed, it was theatrical, there were certain garments and certain instruments and certain orders and all kinds of things. Now, when we get to the New Testament, it's pretty sparse as far as the description. And so I cannot defend the claim that some people make dogmatically that the early church every week sang, friends are friends forever, before they took up the offering. So we we don't totally know, right? If you didn't grow up in church, you're like, I don't even know what that is, it wasn't funny, all right? But here's what I do know, that over and over the pattern we see, despite persecution, despite dispersion, despite all of these things, the church gathered together faithfully. Why? Because it's how they were marked as followers of Jesus Christ. It's how they were marked as followers of Jesus Christ to the watching world, and that pattern still is true. So you can't be engaged faithfully, like Hebrews 10 talks about, if you're not showing up consistently. So it's the prerequisite to engagement, which God calls all of us to here in Hebrews chapter 10. Here's the second thing I want you to see from Scripture is this, is that gathering for worship 
produces a change of perspective. You ever got up on Sunday morning and thought, I don't want to go. You ever thought that? Raise your hand if you thought that. Yeah, if your hand's not up, you're a liar, all right? And you know, you ever hear, hear people sometimes like, oh, you know, it's just easy to get to church. You know what I know when someone says that? Their kids are grown. Can I get an amen? Like, listen, you know that song, easy like Sunday morning. Those were pagans that sang that song, all right? There's never been an easy Sunday morning in my house. I've threatened every kid and the devil in my house on a Sunday. We're not going to be late again, right? You just, you know, hurrying people. Are you, I can't find my socks. I can't find my shoes. I said, Tasha, I told you to put them by the door. You know, get, us, get it to get, right? And there are times when you get out of your car, you know, you got two little sinners in the back seat, and you're in the driver's seat. It's like the devil himself's in the passenger seat. You're like the whole way there talking with clenched teeth, you know, all those kind of things, making promises that you can't deliver on to your kids and God and anyone else to listen. And you get out parking lot, God bless, how are you? I'm great, how are you? I just want someone to get out of the car one Sunday and go, how are you? You know what? Almost killed my kids on the way. Thanks for asking. It's great. Normal Sunday. But in those times, listen, I've had those and I get paid to be here. But there have been many a time where I have walked in and, th- listen, I'm being as honest as I can this morning. There have been times I've come to church and I said, Lord, I don't want to preach today. I know how I've struggled this week. I know that, how, listen, I, I'm not even a place where I want to preach. And there have been times I've walked into church not even wanting to be here, and I've walked out and saying, thank God that I was. Because I didn't want to show up, but boy, God sure did, and it changed my perspective. That's exactly what Psalm 73 is about. In Psalm 73, it was written by a guy named Asaph, uh, and Asaph in Psalm 73 is wrestling with the idea that the wicked seem to be prospering. And the way he was reminded of that is when the church gathered together. When the saints, those living in covenant relationship with God, gathered together, he was reminded as he looked around the, the assembly that he saw, man, some of these people, I know them throughout the week, and they're singing, and they're, they're looking pious and holy, and they're wicked. And it began to discourage him and weigh on him. And, and, and this is not a Bible phrase. It ate his lunch, all right? And all through uh, Psalm 73, verses 1 through 15, he's complaining, he's bitter, he's like the wicked are prospering, they're coming to church, they're acting like everything's fine, I know it's not fine, I know those people, I know what they do, I know what they say, I know how they behave, and I just can't stand this idea that, that God's not judging them as I see that he should, and he's just bitter and he's discouraged. Every time he comes into the gathering, he looks across the room, and he's like, oh, that person, and they did that, and I saw this week, they did, all those kinds, he's just bitter. But listen to what changes perspective. When he comes in, he's, he doesn't want to be there. Then he says in verse 16, because verse 15 is all about the wicked are prospering. And then verse 16 says this. When I thought how to understand this, like when I tried to make sense of it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. In other words, I just got more discouraged. And then listen to this in verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I was all grieved by all this temporal dysfunction until I went into the place of worship and got a view of the eternal God who is just and holy and will make all things right in his time. He said, it changed my perspective. Listen, 
when you get weighed down by the temporary trappings of this world and sin is hard and I get all of that, listen, one of the best things you can do is the thing you don't want to do is to gather together with the saints and lift up and exalt the name of Jesus Christ, the name above every name, and a reminder that, yes, my week was totally jacked up, but Christ is still on the throne. He's still returning on a white horse, regardless of who's in the White House. He's still sovereign. Everything will end as he says it in. I need a view of that. I need to be reminded. I need to have my perspective changed in worship. That's what he says here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And when the saints gather together and Christ is lifted up and prayers are offered and the word of God is preached and people are submitting themselves to the authority of the word, listen, God does something collectively that he does not do in his sovereignty individually, just me and my devotions, or me and a podcast, or watching something online. And so for our deep, enduring joy, there is simply no replacement for corporate worship, the gathering together of the saints. I like what one writer said. He said this. He said, the world is a cruel place, and the worry it causes can shrink wrap the world down to the size of our problems. But when we worship with the saints, it punches holes in the cellophane and lets his light shine through once again, and I'm reminded that he's God. That's what happens. And God changes us on the spot. God, you, you, ever, you ever sat in a service, and you just come in, and then someone teaches something from the pulpit, and you're like, oh, that was, that was for me. That was totally, and I've had people after service, hey, listen, you preached that just for me, and inside, like, I'm grateful for that. Inside, I'm thinking, actually, I didn't. I preached it for Jesus, but I'm glad that he used it in your life, Right? And I've sat there in church, and I remember being in a conference a few years ago, and I was just sitting there, and it's like there's thousands of people in this conference, and the guy's preaching, and it's just right at me, and I'm thinking, he's talking to me. And God uses this gathering. God has called people to shepherd and to teach and to lead us in worship. Why? Because they're gifted to point us to Jesus, and when we see him and all of his glory, it changes our perspective. And if you're like me, and your weeks can be like my weeks, I need that regularly regularly. I can't get that from a podcast or the internet. I gather with the saints and stay in the tradition of the church for hundreds if not thousands of years. So God meets us in powerful ways in corporate worship. It changes our perspective. And here's the last thing I want you to see is this, is that faithfully gathering is the primary means of getting equipped for ministry and mission. It's the primary, not the only, the primary means of getting built up so that God can use us to make disciples. A churchgoer wrote a letter to the editor of a newspaper and complained that it made no sense to go to church every Sunday. They wrote and said, I've been going for 30 years now. And he said, in that time, I estimate I've heard something like uh, 3,000 sermons. And so for the life of me, I can't remember a single one of them. And so I think I'm wasting my time, and, and the priests or pastors are wasting their time by giving sermons at all. And this started a real controversy in the letters to the editor column. Much of the delight of the editor, it went on for weeks until someone wrote this and shut the whole thing down. They said, I've been married for 30 years now. In that time, my wife has cooked some 32,000 meals. But for the life of me, I can't recall the entire menu for a single one of those meals. But I do know this. They all nourished me and gave me the strength I needed to do my work. If my wife had not given me these meals, I would be physically dead. Likewise, if I had not gone to church for nourishment, I would be spiritually dead today. 
corporate worship centered on Christ-exalting lyrics and biblically-centered preaching feeds our souls and strengthens us to do the work of disciple-making. Listen, if you're not spiritually being nourished when the church is gathered together and the Word of God is being taught and the name of Jesus is being lifted up for worship and prayers are being offered, then listen, you're trying to minister people to, with an empty well. You cannot draw water from an empty well, and corporate worship is one of the buckets that we draw grace from. As a matter of fact, some people would argue it's the most important spiritual discipline. Uh, last year we had a book of the year uh, called uh, Habits of Grace written by a guy named David Mathis. Many of you read that book. We sold lots of copies. I encourage you to read it if you have it. Here's what David Mathis said on the importance of uh, corporate worship as a spiritual discipline. Here's what he said. He said the reason corporate worship may be the single most important Christian habit and our greatest weapon in the fight for joy is because like no other single habit, corporate worship combines all three essential principles of God's ongoing supply for grace for the Christian life. And then he illustrates hearing his voice in his word, having his ear in prayer, and belonging to his body, the fellowship of the church. He said all three of those are at play only in corporate worship. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's not private worship. One another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is a kind of a manual on what to do and what not to do in, uh, when the church gathers together in corporate worship. Now, a lot of Baptists don't read that passage because it talks about speaking in tongues. And that makes us nervous, but here's what it does say that we clearly understand. Uh, chapter 14, verse 3 says, But one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, comforts them. Now, let me say something that I don't want to be offensive, but it may, may offend a little bit, all right? Here's the deal. When you come here, according to this, these verses, when you come here and gather together here, it's not just for your benefit. Do you understand that? You're sometimes like, well, I, I didn't get anything out of that. <laughs> Listen, you being here and sharing with someone and being next to someone and encouraging someone and them seeing you standing there faithfully when they know your life is falling apart. Listen, sometimes you come and it's not for your benefit. It's for the benefit of the people gathered here. And so he says in verse 3, he says it encourages, comforts, it strengthens. Listen to verse 26 in the same chapter. What then, brothers? When you come together, and he gives a list of things they do when they come together corporately for worship. When you come together, let all things be done for building up. Building up who? It's not building up Jesus. Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the Father and going, you know what? I'm feeling really discouraged today. Get in a room and say my name and I'll be built. No, 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 listen. Who's the building up for? It's the saints gathered around you. The goal of the church is to make disciples, and the primary way that happens is the church gathers together corporately. Now, there has not been a day where my kids have woken up, any of them, and their dad was not a pastor. Not one day. Not one. And you know what my kids still ask me? Like, what exactly do you do? And sometimes I ask my I'm like, are they serious? Did you tell them to say that? Are they serious? You know, what exactly do you do? Oh, I just sit around and wait for the phone to ring, see if someone needs a wedding or a funeral. And other than that, I play golf. I just, you know, that's what I said. You ever wonder what a pastor's job is? And some of you 
like, no, I actually know. Some of you, it's, I think they should preach. Some of you, like, I think they should be a theologian and write. Some of you, like, I think they should be a chaplain. I think they should be a CEO and run the organization. All those kind of things. Listen, here, here's the good news. You don't have to wonder about what a pastor is supposed to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 settles the issue, right? Here, here's every pastor's job description. Here's what he says in verse 11, Ephesians 4. And he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and some pastors and teachers, right? So he's talking about all these things. And then, then here's what it says, why? Here's what verse 12 says. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You know what my job is? My job is not to grow the church. My job is not to be the theologian. Listen, my job is to proclaim the scriptures to you. Why? So that you can be built up in the church. Why? So that you, not just the staff, you can do the work of the ministry and in turn edify the body of Christ. My job is to build you up using the scriptures so that you can engage in disciple making. That's the job of every pastor, whether he's got 50 people or 5,000 people. That's exactly what God has called every single pastor to. And the primary way throughout all the church history that that happens is the church gathers together. Think of the church in Jerusalem. It grew to be thousands of people, this original mega church. You think the pastor thought, okay, this is what God's called me to. This is why God called me to be a pastor. Verse 12, he said, okay, and so how I'll do that, I'll go to every single house of thousands of people, and I'll sit down with them and have a one-on-one Bible study, and I'll personally build up every single person. No, no, no. He said, I'm going to get people together, because that's a tradition of the church throughout all the history, and I'm going to faithfully, publicly proclaim the Christ-honoring Word of God and the Scriptures, and we're going to lift up the name of Jesus and in turn it equips people to do what God has called them to do and the reality is that pattern has not changed for 2,000 years but you cannot be built up if you only intermittently show up and that's exactly what God calls every pastor to do now you say can I just I can get information online I go I said listen God has also called pastors to shepherd people and every pastor when he's studying when he's saying okay this is what it means how does it apply he's got faces in his mind he knows stories in shepherding people and he says oh I know someone who's walking through this I need to speak into that I know someone who's struggling with this, and if there's one, there's two, three, twenty. I need to apply that in this kind of way. Listen, that's a part of the place that God has called you. And one of the ways that pastors shepherd the flock, it's not just visiting and those kind of, listen, one of the primary ways, the most important way that pastor shepherds the flock is proclaiming the word. Now, let me read a verse to you, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And let me give this disclaimer, so if you're listening, say amen. When I read this verse, you're going to hear it, and you're going to go, I bet you would like everyone to make that their life verse. All right? And I promise you nothing's further from the truth. Hebrews 13, 17 says this. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. That is the memory verse at my house, by the way. Their work is to watch over your souls and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow because that would not be for your benefit. Now, when he talks about obey your spiritual leaders because they, they rule over you, listen, any pastor who's excited about that is a pastor who hasn't considered the weight of the second part of that verse because he will give an account unto God. Okay? And so, so what does he say about that? He says, do it in such a way that it would produce joy and not with sorrow. So, so what would cause a pastor's sorrow uh, in his shepherding? Listen, <laughs> I'm writing a book. There's all kinds of ways, right? 
Sometimes uh, as a pastor, if you're on staff, sometimes you'll see someone like coming to talk to you and you can tell like they're not coming to share testimony, right? But sometimes the people in churches have the spiritual gift of discouragement. And they want to share it with you. And so, so there, listen, there's all kinds of things. But listen, let me tell you one of the things that, that discourages a pastor uh, and grieves the work he's doing. It's when God has called him to build up the saints faithfully and they only show up intermittently. Why? Because it can't happen. It can't happen. And so, here's what I would offer up for consideration. Settle the issue now. One writer said this. He said, attending church on a Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. He said, settle the issue now that for me and my family, uh, th this is an important spiritual discipline. And don't, don't wait on the weekend and find out what's the weather like and what popped up and I want to do that and this or how do I feel and someone's got the sniffles. No, no. Settle the issue now that you will stand in line with, with generations of Christians who understood the importance of how God uses corporate worship when the saints gather together. Be deeply committed to the spiritual discipline of faithfully gathering. Retired pastor and author Kent Hughes uh, said this. He said the entire Christian life is about commitment. First and above all to Christ, but also to his church, to family, to marriage, to friendship, to ministry. None of these will ever flourish apart from commitment. Marriage, for example, can never produce the security, satisfaction, and growth that it promises unless there's commitment. Unless this line, this is fantastic. He says the most elementary level, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian, and that's true. He said, but also, you don't have to go home to be married. But in both cases, if you do not, you will have a very poor relationship. And so don't let anything capture the affections of your heart more than the anticipation of gathering together faithfully with the body of Christ, exalting the name of Jesus, sitting under the authority of his word. Not some dry, legalistic, checklist, you know, kind of a thing. No, it's because it's a delight. And I believe that every time someone gets up to teach, not just me, every, every time someone gets up to teach, I believe that God speaks and I can't afford to miss that communication. I believe that God dispenses his grace when we gather together corporately. And if you're like me, I need all the grace I can get. Amen? And so as we begin this new year and start off, I'm going to encourage you to commit yourself afresh to the habit of gathering faithfully. Because it's how we make disciples here at Liberty Heights Church. Would you bow your heads this morning? Your head bowed this morning if you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your personal Savior. Then you can come every single week and still miss out on eternity. Faithfulness is to be the overflow of a relationship with Christ. It doesn't produce it. And so if you're here and you go to church and you consider yourself religious and you grew up in church, but you've never, never been born again, you've never accepted Christ, you've never been saved, listen, you've hit a home run and missed first. The foundation of all of this is the overflow of a relationship with Christ. So let me ask you this morning, is there a time in your life, is there a season you can recall when you've personally made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'm not asking if you believe in him and what he did. I'm asking you, have you entered into a personal relationship with him? And if the answer is no or I'm not sure, then the reality is this morning is that you can be. And the Bible says that if you'll believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross as payment for our sins, was buried and rose the third day, and if you'll call on him in dependence, 
for salvation and forgiveness, that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so if you're here this morning, you feel like God is speaking to your heart and drawing you to himself and leading you to make that decision, you can pray and receive Christ right now, right in your seat this morning. Would you just pray, confess your sins, acknowledge your desire to turn from them, accept Christ as your Savior, and make a commitment to follow him with your life. Would you do that today if you've never done that? But many of you, you made that decision a long time ago. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, not, not raise your hands, not to indicate anything. I'm going to ask you this morning, right in your seat, would you just commit yourself afresh this morning to the idea that gathering together every weekend faithfully is a commitment that God is calling you to. That the gathering together of the saints, that corporate worship is not something that's optional in the Christian life. It's foundational in the Christian life. It's one of the ways that God builds us up and changes our perspective and helps us to be engaged in the mission of Jesus all over the world. And so would you just commit yourself to that faithfulness this morning? It's the most important thing you'll do this year. Father, I'm grateful that your word gives us clear wisdom in a culture that is often confusing as it relates to spirituality. And Lord, this call to be faithful is modeled by the early church and taught over and over again. And so Lord, let us lay claim to that and stand in that generation of faithfulness. But Lord, I'm also grateful today that your love for me is consistent even when I'm in seasons of being unfaithful. Lord, our faithfulness doesn't increase your love for us one single bit. But Lord, it is a mark of the overflow of our love for you. And so Lord, this, we approach this new year in 2018, I pray one simple thing, find us faithful. We pray that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.